God, we thank you for a chance to gather as the people of God under the authority of your word. God, we do not take this uh, for granted. We are thankful for it. God, one of the reasons why we're thankful for it is because all week long, the world has been preaching uh, different kinds of sermons, false gospels, ways to ground our identity that's not in Jesus. And so, God, I thank you for this time where we can be refreshed with the good news of Jesus and what it means to be in Christ. And God, I pray that you would give us the wisdom to be able to discern this text. Would you illuminate our minds and our hearts? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Last week, we looked at part one of this passage of what it means to have our identity in Jesus. And last week, we primarily looked at the strong warning given by Paul, rooted in verse 8. And this warning I summed up as for us to think about our thinking. Not to think less, but to actually think more. To think more biblically and to think more critically. The reason why we need to do that, according to Paul, is because there are philosophies and ideologies and ways of thinking that are not neutral. And if we're not careful, these unbiblical ways of thinking can actually end up uprooting our identity in Jesus. And so last week, we actually looked at uh, three uh, of these philosophies or these isms that I think we need to be especially on guard against. We looked at materialism, individualism, and pluralism. Of course, there are many more isms or many more philosophies that we need to be on guard against. But the point of last week was for us to note that these are dangerous because they form an identity for us to live out of and for us to make decisions from. That they don't just tell us how to view the world, but they want to tell us how to view ourselves. And so we tend to actually form identities not, not fully grounded in Jesus when we don't think about our thinking which is why I shared this wisdom pyramid um, last week from Brett McCracken. And this was so helpful because uh, you and I probably feel this all the time. We are constantly being inundated with all kinds of information, all kinds of knowledge every single day. And this is helpful because this, this informs how we need to categorize knowledge and truth and information that's constantly coming at us. But not only that, but this pyramid, I think, helps us to weigh and uh, correctly give the amount of authority, depending on which food group of knowledge that it falls into. And Brett McCracken argues that we can develop a wisdom crisis when we give equal weight and equal authority to each of these different food groups of knowledge. And that wisdom crisis will eventually lead to an identity crisis. For example, if we give equal amount of authority uh, on who we are, on what we read on social media, on people's responses to our posts, and how many likes we get compared to who we are in Christ according to the Bible, then you're going to have an identity crisis, right? And you can apply that throughout all of those different food groups of knowledge. And so the challenge last week was to think about our thinking. Well, the question this morning that I want us to think through is, what does it look like when the Bible is the authority over your life, defining who you are in Jesus? Or to use Paul's words from verse 10, how do you know when your life is being filled with the fullness of Christ? Okay, I think verses 11 through 15 helps answer that question as we embrace and live out who we are in Christ. See, last week we saw in verses 9 and 10, 
Paul make, makes this unbelievable connection that dramatically impacts how we understand our identity in Jesus. That Paul argues that Christ, who is full of God, fills us. That God has made available all that Jesus is so that Jesus defines our lives, describes our lives, and directs our lives. So when you get to verses 11 through 15, Paul is just building on that, and he provides three realities to describe a life that is filled with the fullness of Jesus. Now, before we look at verses 11 through 15, let me tell you why these are important. And if you notice in the scripture reading here, Paul doesn't just say that Jesus saved you, right? You probably noticed that. He doesn't just say that Jesus died for you or God forgives you. No, Paul provides a precise, detailed, worshipful description of all that Jesus has done for us in the cross, and he's doing that in order to ignite a passionate desire within us to want to be filled with the fullness of God. See, what Paul is after here in terms of understanding our identity in Jesus is, is he doesn't want us just to be concerned with our thinking, but he's just as concerned with our desires, right? Not just to think about our thinking, but to make sure that our longings and our yearnings is to be filled with the fullness of Jesus, okay? And, and here's why. And I shared this quote from A.W. Tozer last week as we ended, just a left hook as you guys were walking out of the room here. But A.W. Tozer talks about desires this way. He says, before we can be filled with the Spirit, the desire to be filled must be all-consuming. It must be, for the time, the biggest thing in the life, so acute, so intrusive, as to crowd out everything else, that the degree of fullness in any life accords perfectly with the intensity of true desire, that we have as much of God as we actually want. See, here's how I think this works out practically. If I think that my life revolves around me and everything in my life is going relatively okay at the moment, then I am easily satisfied with a small amount of God, at least until my next crisis hits, right? It's only when I'm convinced that life is not about me that life does not revolve around me, when I see the preeminence and the supremacy of King Jesus, that I want to be filled with the fullness of Christ, right? And that's what Paul is after here. He is targeting our desires and our hearts in order to understand our identity in Jesus. And he does so by providing these three realities that are true because you're in Christ. Okay, let's look at the first one this morning. Verse 11 here is that in Christ, you have a new belonging. In Christ, you have a new belonging. In verse 11, Paul claims that in Christ, we have been circumcised, right? But he describes that circumcision. He says it's a circumcision not done with hands. Okay, so Paul's talking about a spiritual circumcision or a circumcision of the hearts, or what Paul calls the circumcision of Christ. Now, why does Paul bring in the topic of circumcision in trying to explain who we are in Christ? Well, in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, those that belonged to God in faith were marked with the outward sign of circumcision. 
right? It was the removal of flesh from a very sensitive area of the body, right? It was the custom to be circumcised eight days after birth as a symbolic sign of separating yourself from the world because you belong to God, Right? So Paul is using that same kind of language here, but not talking about physical circumcision or the removal of flesh. Paul is talking about this spiritual circumcision, the circumcision of the heart conducted by the Spirit of God at your conversion when you put your faith in Jesus in order to mark you, in order to define you, in order to say that you belong to God. Now, this helps inform our identity in Jesus, because Paul's using this to make sure that we understand that our identity is rooted in Christ, which means we have a new belonging, that you belong to God. You don't belong to this world. Your citizenship is in heaven, and so this world is not your home. Therefore, you shouldn't root your identity in the things of this world. And I think it's really important because how we understand who we are and who we belong to directly impacts how we live and the decisions that we make. For example, in college, I played basketball at Cedarville University. And I remember as a freshman getting onto campus that first weekend, just so excited for the season, so excited just to get after it. But one of the first things that we did as a team is we had this team meeting with the coach. It was in the locker room. And the coach was explaining the fall workout programs, kind of his vision and goals for the team this year. And then he addressed the freshmen in the room. And you could tell it's kind of a speech that he says every year to the freshmen. But he says, men, you come from respected high school basketball programs. But now when you walk out of this locker room, you are a Cedarville Yellow Jacket, that you belong to this team Therefore, the decisions that you make and how you live, it represents us. It reflects who we are. So make sure you're making wise decisions. That's always stuck with me because it's so true. How we understand who we are and who we belong to directly impacts how we live and the decisions that we make. And what Paul is doing here with circumcision is he's saying, this is what is marking you and defining you because you belong to God. So when you think about yourself, you need to think about yourself in terms of you being first and foremost a Christian who belongs to God. And so if you're a nurse this morning, you're not first and foremost a nurse who just so happens to be a Christian. No, you are first and foremost a Christian who just so happens to be a nurse. That you're not first and foremost a businessman or a businesswoman who just so happens to be a Christian. No, you are first and foremost a Christian who just so happens to be in the business world. That you are first and foremost a Christian who just so happens to be a parent. That you're not first and foremost a Republican or a Democrat who just so happens to be a Christian, but you are first and foremost a Christ follower whose allegiance is to King Jesus and the authority of his word. Therefore, you vote out of that reality. See, you belong to God, and it shapes your identity. See, the challenge is, and the problem is, for all of us, is that so often we try to kind of ground and root our identity in both Christ and the things of this world, don't we? That if we're around our Christian friends, or we're at church, or we're spending time with, with God, we put on the, the Christian hat, the identity in Christ hat. 
But when we're around other people, other friends, co-workers, or we're by ourselves, that's when we take the Christian hat off and we put a different kind of hat on. And yet the reality here is that because of this spiritual circumcision, you've been marked, you are now defined, and you have a new belonging in Christ. Therefore, live out of that reality. So that's the first one that Paul provides here in verse 11. Secondly, though, he continues, and he says that in Christ, you have a new freedom. Verse 12, Paul transitions from talking about the old covenant sign of circumcision of belonging to God to now verse 12, talking about the new covenant sign of belonging to God, which is baptism. But Paul is using this outward sign of baptism, not just to talk about that we've been saved, but Paul is actually describing the symbolic picture of baptism and what it refers to. See, for Paul here, he's using baptism to make sure that we understand that we have been buried with Christ in baptism. In other words, you have died to sin, you have died to yourself, you have died to the old man. That's exactly what baptism symbolizes. That's why we fully immerse people. When you go down under the water, that is symbolizing you dying to self, you dying to sin, and then you are raised out of the water to symbolize your new life in Jesus, to walk in the newness of life. Or Paul, I think, talks about this in Romans 6 uh, more clearly. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. See, here's Paul's point in verse 12, is that because we've been united in Jesus, our relationship to sin has forever been changed that we have died to sin, therefore we are no longer enslaved to it, nor are we defined by it. That sin's power has been broken, therefore you can experience real lasting freedom from its destructive power. I love how Charles Spurgeon uh, talks about this. He says that your sin is a condemned thing, that it may go kicking and screaming, but it is doomed to die. And that's true because you've been buried with Christ in baptism. Look, this informs how we understand who we are in Jesus and and our identity in Jesus because our sin no longer defines us, that you are no longer defined by the sin of your past. And that's a really helpful reminder because one of the biggest barriers to living out who you are in Christ is because of the sins of our past want to come into our present and hijack our identity in Christ, wants to remind us of all the mistakes that we've done. And yet Paul's point here is that because you've been buried with Christ in baptism, your sin no longer defines you. Look, maybe some of you need to hear this this morning, that your pornography does not define you, that your divorce 
does not define you. That that abortion that you may have had does not define you. That your fear and your anxiety, they no longer define you. That your outburst of anger and, and the list goes on and on and on no longer defines you and marks you. You're no longer in your sin. You are in Christ and the righteousness of Christ now covers you and the blood of Jesus cleanses you. And so when you look at yourself in the mirror, because you've been buried with Christ in baptism, you're no longer defined by the sins of your past. You're defined by the righteousness and the blamelessness of Jesus Christ. Like you need to preach that to yourself. You need to understand that when you get up in the morning, you need to understand who you are in Jesus because all throughout the day, you are constantly being bombarded with false identities and the chief one is the sins of your past. Like Paul's saying you're declared innocent, you are righteous, so live in that reality. Live in the newness of life. Look, so many, I think, walk in sin, live in sin, because even though Jesus has unlocked the prison door of our sin, even though he's opened it up and he's beckoning us to, to walk out of the prison cell, so many of us look at ourselves and we think, I'm still wearing the prison clothes. I'm just gonna hang out here for a moment. And it's because our eyes are on our sin and they're not on Christ. Jesus has freed you, so walk in that reality. We have been buried with Christ in baptism. Therefore, we leave behind our old selves of sin. So in Christ, you have a new freedom. Thirdly here, the third reality I want to point out in verses 13 through 15 is that in Christ, you have new life. In Christ, you have new life. Verse 13, Paul talks about even though we were dead in our trespasses or sins, God has made us alive together with Christ. Paul's just reiterating what he has just said at the end of verse 12, that we have been raised with Christ through faith and the powerful working of God who raised Christ from the dead. Look, this is so powerful. These verses can absolutely transform how you understand who you are in Jesus. Because Paul is saying here, because your faith unites yourself with Christ, you have been given new life, that you're no longer dead in your sins. You're no longer guilty. You're no longer far from God. You're no longer hopeless. But because of being in Christ, you have been resurrected to new life in Jesus. You're a new creation the old has gone and the new has come. But I love the implications of this. Paul doesn't just say that. He doesn't just say Jesus has saved you or Jesus has died for you. Paul unpacks the implications of this because he's after your desires. Look at the end of verse 13, what Paul says. He says, you have been forgiven all your sin. I love that. I love the word all there. I have it circled. I have it underlined in my Bible because Paul is saying all of your sin has been forgiven. Not just some of it, not just a little bit of it, not just the small sins, but Paul says all of your sin has been forgiven. Look, this speaks to the complete and the definitive work of Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross that your past and your present and your future sins have been paid in full so that the three most powerful words can be spoken over your life that you are forgiven. Like this is who you are in Jesus, that you have forgiveness from a holy, 
holy God. And yet Paul doesn't end there. Paul continues on, doesn't he? Paul says that the record of debt that stood against us has been nailed to the cross. This record of debt refers to the long list, that that long list of sinful deeds that you and I have committed against a holy God that condemns us. Paul beautifully and powerfully declares that God has taken that list of indebtedness and he has nailed it to the cross. That God has wiped it clean. That chasm, that unbridgeable gap between sinful humanity and a holy God has been erased because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished on the cross. But can you picture this this morning? Can you picture our loving and holy God who's holding up that long list of sins that you have committed? Those sins that that you're so ashamed of, those sins that are rebellion against God, and he holds up that list, and he lovingly looks you in the eyes, and he takes that, and he nails it to the cross, and he declares that you bear it no more. And he declares that list has no power over you anymore. That list does not define you anymore. What defines you is that you are in Christ Jesus. Look, do you see what Paul's doing? Paul is trying to stir up these longings within us to want to be filled with the fullness of Christ. Not just think about your thinking, but to think about what you long for, that it should be Christ Jesus. This reminds me of the third stanza in the wonderful hymn, It is well with my soul. It says, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, not just some, not just a little bit, not just the small, but the whole is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. But he doesn't end there, does he? He continues, doesn't he? He goes on, and in these last few verses, verse 15, Paul declares this victory that's in Christ Jesus over the spiritual realm, over the satanic beings and rulers and authorities. This victory that because you're in Christ is your victory that you walk in. Paul says that God has disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He's put them to open shame. In other words, this wasn't a private matter, but God has made a public spectacle of them, that God triumphs over them because of Jesus, that he has the victory over our enemy, Satan, and death itself, and he displays this victory by walking and triumphing over them. Look, believer, this morning, this is who you are in Jesus. This is your identity. You have a new belonging, a new freedom and you have new life in him. Look, the challenge and the question that we need to wrestle with is, are we applying who we are in Christ to how we live our lives? That's the challenge. We know our positional identity in Christ, but you, are you applying this to your relationships, to how you parent, to your marriage, to who you are in the workplace, to how you spend your money, to how you battle sin? That because you're in Christ, how does that impact all of the other arenas in your life? That's the challenge. I came across this 
A very convicting quote by Richard Lovelace talks about the challenge of this. He says that only a fraction of the present body of professing Christians are solidly appropriating the justifying work of Christ in their lives. That many have a theoretical commitment to this doctrine, but in their day-to-day existence, they rely on their sanctification for justification, drawing their assurance of acceptance with God from their sincerity, their past experience of conversion, their recent religious performance, or the relative infrequency of their conscious, willful disobedience. That few know enough to start each day with a thoroughgoing stand upon this platform, you are accepted. Looking outward in faith, and claiming the holy alien righteousness of Christ as the only ground for acceptance, relaxing in that quality of trust, which will produce increasing sanctification as faith is active in love and gratitude. So that's the challenge, is to apply our justification in Christ to how we live our lives. And so look, as we close this morning, let me Let me provide three indicators that you know you're living out who you are in Jesus. These are three ways that you can discern that in your own life. Here's number one, is that you believe that your worth is found in Jesus. Your worth is found in Jesus. Look, where we find our identity inevitably defines our significance and how much we think that we're worth. And yet you know that you're living out who you are in Jesus when you understand that your worth and your significance is not tied to your performance, to what you achieve, to how much money you make, to what kind of parent you are, to what you look like, but you understand that your worth, your significance is found in Jesus Christ. That all of the spiritual blessings that are Christ are yours because you're in him, And so you're not just accepted before God. You're not just forgiven, but God actually delights in you because you are in Christ, and that forms your worth and your significance. Secondly, another indicator that you can tell you're living out who you are in Christ is when your life spills out Jesus, right? When you get bumped around by life, what comes out of you is Jesus Christ. One of my staff members sent me this quote today says, in all my years of pastoring, I've learned this lesson, that a person's spiritual maturity is not truly visible until they don't get their way. Then you see the person. Or as the the great theologian Heidi Sweet said this week in staff meeting, what you spill out is determined on what you're filled up with. And the calling here in this passage for Paul is that if we are so filled up with the fullness of Jesus, what that means is when you don't get your way, when, when, when your work throws you a curveball, when the kids misbehave, when you experience disappointment, when you experience pain, when there's yet another mask mandate, what spills out of your life is not complaining, it's not a pity party, it's not irritability, It's not harshness, but it's Christ. It's the fruit of the Spirit because you're so filled up with the fullness of Jesus. So what comes out of you is love 
and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control, that Christ comes out of your life. Like that's the challenge, isn't it? And how we live our lives because we're constantly getting bumped around every single day. And you know that you're living out who you are in Jesus when Jesus is spilling out of you. Thirdly here, the last thing I'll close with this is that you know that you're living out who you are in Jesus because your ultimate satisfaction is Jesus. Ultimate satisfaction is Jesus. Look, because you can have as much of God as you want, the reality is, is that you're living your identity in Jesus when you are funneling your desires towards Christ and being satisfied in him. That he's your chief, primary, and ultimate satisfaction. Look, that's not to say that you're not going to be satisfied by other things, like family, like friends, like your job, like uh, ice cream or a new pair of pants, right? But the reality is, is that you know the ice cream's not going to last. You know that pair of pants will eventually not fit or will become so worn. But Jesus remains same. That Jesus is what truly satisfies to the core of our being. And Paul is writing here to convince us, not just intellectually, of the preeminence and the sufficiency of Christ, but he's trying to convince our hearts and our affections that Jesus is best and that in him we lack nothing. We don't need to add to him, that he is all that we need. So this morning, as we think about how to respond to today and last week's message, I, I wonder if some of us in this room thinking about being in Christ, maybe some of you, the response is to actually become a Christian today. And maybe some who are listening online today, maybe as we're talking about having an identity in Jesus, you haven't made that decision to put your faith in Jesus yet. And so maybe your response today, we invite you, is to place your faith and your trust upon Jesus Christ, that Jesus got up on a cross 2,000 years ago to die for your sin and for you, right where you are, if it's in this room or if it's in your living room, just to cry out to God by faith to accept that free gift of eternal life and put your trust and your faith in all that Jesus has done. Look, maybe others of us this morning need to respond to this message by furthering your understanding of what it means to be in Christ. Maybe over the last couple of weeks you've been challenged and maybe you've realized that you have a superficial understanding of your identity in Jesus. Maybe you're struggling to connect the dots of, here's my positional identity, but I'm struggling to connect it to my functional identity. So the challenge I would lay before you is to immerse yourself in passages of scripture that talk about your identity in Jesus, like Ephesians 1, like Romans 6, for example, and to, to connect those truths to how you live your life. Look, maybe others of us this morning, our response is to confess our sins and to repent. And maybe the reality is, is that we've been exposed in our own hearts of ways that we've been grounding our identity that's not fully in Jesus. It's in these other false identities, these other identities found in the world. And so maybe your response this morning as we sing this last song is to confess that to God. And to, and to confess to God, I want to root myself in Christ. Help me to do that. And look, if that's you, God already knows. God has his arms open wide, and he's inviting you to confess that sin. His grace is enough. And so however the Lord is leading you, we're just going to give you a few minutes here just to respond to him 
before we sing this last song. Let me pray for our time to do that. God, I pray in these moments that you would give us humility, that you would give us wisdom, and that you would give us courage to look inside the deep places of our hearts where you are active, where you are revealing things that are uncomfortable. God, give us courage to stand in that place and to hear and to respond. God, we thank you that in Jesus we lack nothing. We thank you for his full sufficiency. Help us, oh God, to live out of that reality. We pray in Christ's name, amen.